RadioInfluence.com. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Monday edition of the Dark Delight Podcast with... Pi Day. It's Pi Day. (laughs) That's all I can think of, Tracy Beats. It's Mike Opelka with you. (laughs) And Beans, me, Beans, um, we're about to do an interview, or I'm about to do an interview. Mike just sat there quietly in the corner. <laughs> I did. I was, well, I'm not going to lie. It's Pi Day, you know, 3.14159. Yeah. Remember? Yeah, and so I, I admit to having some pie that I will consume while listening to you <laughs> and Larry Schweikert uh, talk about history. He's such a, what a prolific writer. His Reagan biography his seven events that made America, America book, 48 liberal lies about American history. He's just, he's a giant brain. He is a giant brain. And I'm really glad I got to know him when I was covering Spygate and he was always pessimistic <laughs> about, about the outcome, but we got to be friends and he's written for Uncovered DC and he writes a daily column for us called the news of today is the history of tomorrow. And it's kind of like a collation of all the things going on in his opinion and his nickname list is is at the bottom of every article and it grows by the day. I mean, it's so good. Um, so if you haven't checked that out, check it out. It's published every day. Without further ado, here's a quick interview with uh, Larry Schweikert, author of Dragon Slayers, Six Presidents and Their War with the Swamp. And I am so excited to be joined by a very dear friend of mine, a brilliant, brilliant man. I say the same thing about Mike, but he's, you know, I'm talking about Larry Schweikert. Um, Larry, you have a new book out. It's called Dragon Slayers, Six Presidents and Their War with the Swamp. And um, when I, you told me you were writing this, I was I was infinitely excited because I knew you'd do such a stellar job. Welcome to the Dark Delight podcast, friend. Thanks, Tracy. Good to, good to virtually see you again here. <laughs> yes. And so I want to get into before we get into this amazing book because it is something and I think it can be used as sort of a deep state Bible for any president who comes into office, not understanding what they're up against. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself. You're 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 a brilliant historian and you've got a ton of other things you do. So just give everybody an update on what you've got going on and what what your background is. Well, my background is I started as a rock and roll drummer opening for Steppenwolf, the James Gang and hanging out with the Allman Brothers and And then abruptly in the mid-70s, it's a long story, but I just decided almost overnight I wanted to be a professor. And I already had a BA in political science, so it didn't take much to get into the history master's program at Arizona State. And then they did me a big favor and kicked me out because they couldn't get me a job. And they said, "Go, go to a better college. So they sent me to UC Santa Barbara, where I got my PhD. And Got a job teaching at the University of Dayton for 31 years. And in the middle of that 31 years, I stopped writing academic books because nobody was reading them. And I decided I wanted to write books that people would actually read. And in 2004, Mike Allen and I wrote Patriots History of the United States that became number one New York Times bestseller, was at the top of the charts for a month and and remains the best-selling conservative U.S. history book out there. And, and rightfully so. I've, I've seen some of that. I have never gotten the entire thing. But you have a whole like you do a whole course. It's called um, Wild World of History. And it's a homeschooling course for for parents who are looking to actually teach their kids what really happened. And can you t- tell us a little bit about that? 
Sure. Uh, people were always saying, do you guys have a curriculum to go along with this? And we didn't have the support there. I was in Dayton. He was at University of Washington, Tacoma. And I just didn't have the web support or other support to develop a curriculum. I never liked that part of the educational uh, school of education anyway, where you had to write all the curriculum down. But I got to Arizona when I retired and I got some support out here. We put together the Wild World of History, wildworldofhistory.com, and developed a full U.S. history course that is tied specifically to Patriots history of the United States, 22 chapters, 22 videos. I, I teach everything in video as well as in written form. And then uh, two years ago, we developed a world history course to go with Patriots history of the modern world. And that has 15 lessons or longer lessons in Patriots history and 15 videos. And I am hitting the homeschool circuit this week. I'll be in uh, Greenville, South Carolina, the great homeschool convention then St. Louis next week and all through the summer. I'll be in uh, Ontario, California, Phoenix, Cincinnati, Orlando, uh, the Woodlands in Texas and Austin, Texas. So if you're at any of those places, come check out the curriculum. It's by far the best U.S. history curriculum for high schoolers out there. And that's a lot to do in the midst of releasing a book. So <laughs> let's, let's just give you some credit there because schedules get crazy. So Let's talk a little bit about this latest one. You came to me and told me you were writing this, and I was like, ooh. Um, and it's it's six presidents. Those six presidents are, we've got, okay. Gro- go ahead. Well, uh, yeah, and, you know, many, I could have applied others here, but uh, I, I chose Lincoln and the Slave Swamp and Grover Cleveland and the Spoiled Swamp, Teddy Roosevelt and the Trust Swamp. JFK and the CIA swamp, Reagan and the bureaucracy swamp, and Trump and the deep state swamp. And originally, I thought I was kind of writing six vignettes, six separate stories. And as I got into it, I realized that this was all tied together, that the spoils swamp that that basically helped cause the election of Lincoln was the very thing that uh, James Garfield tried to deal with and was killed for, that Chester Arthur tried to deal with, but he had a deadly disease and couldn't run for a second term that Grover Cleveland ended up uh, running for and and pretty much defeating. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt dealt with the rise of the big corporations. And it's very interesting that what Roosevelt thought he was doing was saving the big corporations from big media, from the press, from the yellow journalists who he thought would start a revolution that would take over all business and socialize everything. And those I consider to be the three successes. And then the three failures to one degree or another are JFK and his war with the CIA swamp, uh, Reagan with the bureaucracy and Trump with the deep state. So which was your favorite? What were your favorite chapters to kind of write? Because you get into some really detailed history that I don't think a lot of people know in some of this. Like I was stunned to learn some things about um, Lincoln and your intro, too, is is just amazing how how really this all started, Larry. Right. When people when the government grew to the point where the appointments became too much to manage and kind of fell through the cracks, which I think is a theme that weaves through all these guys. Yes, exactly. And, you know, uh, Trump in his rally said something. I'm not sure he really wants to go down that road. He, he said he would favor you know, going back to having the, the president have the ability to fire all of these appointees. 
on the one hand, that's an, a great idea because, again, it makes these people accountable to the president. But on the other hand, we saw by Lincoln's time. Now, this whole thing, I got to preface this by saying it was all set up by uh, one of my favorite people in history, the guy I love to hate, Martin Van Buren, who created the modern day Democrat Party. And the party was created for one reason, to protect and preserve slavery. Every living Democrat ought to let that sink in, that their party had one purpose for existence. That was to protect slavery. So the way he was going to do this, how do you get people from the North who do not have slaves and don't care about slavery and don't want to be involved in slavery? How do you get them to support your party? And his answer was simple. We bribe them. We pay them. We bribe them either with government jobs, as Reagan would say, or uh, with party jobs until they get to a level we can give them a, a government job. And this caused the government to begin to grow for um, 30 years prior to Lincoln, to the point that when Lincoln became president, all of a sudden he had at his disposal thousands upon thousands of government jobs that had critical positions in the South where they could control uh, literature coming in and out was already being banned in the South by postmasters who are appointed by the president or customs officials who could allow black free sailors to get off ships and circulate in the towns. That was prohibited. So when the South saw Lincoln's power coming in and the creature they had created, in many ways they had no choice but to rebel or just give up their slaves. And they weren't about to give up their slaves. So this same theme weaves through. I mean, think about just President Trump, Trump's administration. They put a very keen focus on appointing judges during the administration. However, the problems have come in for all of these guys in the unelected bureaucracy in, that comes in the form of appointments. Do you want to meander through how that common theme even weaves through Kennedy's presidency? Sure. Well, so Lincoln... Lincoln starts with um, uh, a few hundred appointees, and literally, people don't understand that in the middle of the Civil War, he had lines of job seekers inside the White House stretching out down the street, people wanting jobs, okay? After the Civil War, this just exploded with something called the Grand Army of the Republic, which supposedly was veterans, but what you found was it was a bunch of, of people who were just trying to get Binnies, government goodies who never fought in the Civil War at all. And you would expect after a war that the number of veterans claiming benefits would slowly decline, right? They get older, they die. No, it actually grew to some awesome level. So by the time Cleveland became president, it was a massive problem of thousands and thousands of people seeking jobs. And and it killed Garfield. Uh, Garfield was shot by a disgruntled job seeker. He said, uh, I'm a stalwart and now Arthur is president. And of course, what he didn't know was that Arthur had a change of heart and decided to go after the spoil system himself. So it continues on this slow growth till we get to 1887 and the Pendleton Civil Service Act. This is what Trump was referring to that set up the civil service exam to uh, to spare presidents the the um, task of going through these people's resumes and appointing them, you take the test, and if you're qualified via a test, you can get a job as a, a postmaster or any number of tens of thousands of other uh, government appointments. So 
fast forward past the Great Depression and World War II, and you get to Kennedy, and not only has the government bureaucracy grown by leaps and bounds, just, just incredibly, but now you have these national security agencies like the CIA and the FBI who are pretty much unaccountable to presidents, as most of these agencies are, and we'll get into that in a minute, how they, they become unaccountable. But in Kennedy's case, it's, it's particularly deadly because he needs the CIA to wage a war on Castro in Cuba, but he doesn't want them to start a hot war. And he needs the CIA to wage a war in Laos, but he doesn't want to get involved with troops in Laos. And his final stop on this, this train journey is Vietnam, or as uh, LBJ used to call it, Vietnam, where um, he's, he's putting in hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of so-called advisors who are CIA agents and other government appointees. And, and they began developing a foreign policy of their own that is contrary to Kennedy's. And Kennedy is kind of brought along with it. And, and before you know it, he goes from having 600 advisors in Vietnam to 16,000. And the stories of, of, well, Kennedy was going to pull us out of Vietnam. Oh, really? The trend line from 600 to 16,000 shows he's getting out of Vietnam? I don't think so. And so that's kind of, in my opinion, and please correct me if you think I'm wrong, the turning point where things really just go haywire. I don't know that anybody after him would have had a prayer to rein this in. And Ronald Reagan is one of the presidents that you talk about who started off real excited, but kind of trailed in the end. Can you give us a little uh, Ronald Reagan list lesson? Well, yeah, and you're exactly right. But it's not just the CIA and FBI between Kennedy and Reagan. What happens is a crucial change whereby Congress starts to cede, C-E-D-E, authority over all of the agencies. We don't want to deal with them. They're too much trouble. You know, Congress is supposed to go in every year and say, are you guys doing what you're supposed to do? Are you exceeding your authority? And they don't want to do that. That would be work. So instead, they hand that over to courts. And the courts have a very interesting take on all of these agencies and bureaucracies, which is, well, Congress created you. Congress must know what it's doing. So you basically get to define your own authority and scope of authority. And as a result, by Reagan's time, unless these agencies were way, way outside of the bounds that Congress created, the courts tend to leave them alone and let them just implant themselves and expand themselves uh, until they become unmanageable. So Reagan comes in and he has three big goals when he's elected. One, defeat the Soviet Union. Two, fix the American economy. Three, uh, reduce the size of government. And by 1983, 84, he's totally given up on number three. He makes very few speeches about reducing government after that time because he's found it's almost impossible. And I'll just quote one uh, one source there that I have in the book, which I spent a lot of time in the Reagan papers. And, and I found these sources from the agencies and one uh, department head, uh, I don't know if he was the um, uh, director of a cabinet level position. I can't recall. I think he was. But anyway, he said, David Stockman says, we need you to reduce your, your office, your, your department. And he said, oh, well, I've already spent all of, all of last year's budget. 
and I'm in the hole for an answer. I need more money just to start next okay. year. And at that point, I think Stockman and Reagan realized it, it was over. That If this is happening in guys who actually supposedly believed in their mission of cutting government, they had no chance. Well, there's a couple points I want to bring up there. Number one, we'll start with the Hollywood connection. And you tell me what you think about this. Hollywood, the CIA, the the kind of, um, in, I don't know, intelligence world are, are inextricably com- combined. Um, the influence of the CIA in, in Hollywood is is documented. Do you think that there was any hesitance on the part of Reagan to kind of push the envelope there because of that? No, I don't. Uh, Reagan had no trouble taking on <clears throat> certain elements of Hollywood. Uh, you'll recall that that he fought a, a crusade with just a handful of other people uh, to purge the Screen Actors Guild, uh, SAG, or as it's called in Team America World Police, the Film Actors Guild, FAG, uh, to purge them of communists. And uh, so I don't think that that was an issue with him. Um, it is interesting, though, you know, that, that the CIA, as we saw in, in uh, the movie with um, uh Who's it, Ben Affleck? Ben Affleck? Which movie? Of um, where they go into Iran and and get the guys out. I don't know the name of that movie. I have, I'm not a big I'm not a big movie. Yeah. <laughs> in, in, anyway, they 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 have a mission to go into Iran and get some of the hostages out, posing as a film crew, and the CIA, of course, supported them. Well, they create a fake movie company in Hollywood to. Uh, so if the Iranians do any homework, they see that this is a, quote, real movie company. And it's very interesting that when I had my little film company, Rock in the Wall, our headquarters was at uh, Crossroads of the World there on Sunset. And lo and behold, this is where that phony movie company also had its headquarters when it was trying to rescue these, these uh, Iranian hostages. Uh, but Robert Barnes talks at length about the influence of the FBI in Hollywood and how all those shows about the FBI with from Zimbalist Jr. and, you know, all of the more up to date shows about law enforcement that the FBI has its hooks in all those shows, yep. uh, even to the point of script ap- approval in many cases. And, and they're always portrayed as these wonderful good guys and so on and so forth. And I wrote a piece just yesterday on Substack called uh, Why Clint Eastwood is America's Director. And it's interesting that Eastwood took on the FBI in his movie, Richard Jewell. That's why they don't like him. Yep. <laughs> they don't like him. They There's no, not to get off track, but there's no better show that exemplifies what you just said than Blacklist. And I don't know if you've watched it, but it's about a guy who comes in. He's, you know, a criminal, but he works for the government to, to find real criminals. And they, they spun Spygate and the kind of way that the FBI should be viewed in such an interesting manner you'd never catch unless you knew the story. So it was interesting. Um, the second question I have about about Reagan is, you know, he kind of abandons it because he, he kind of he, it's too big for one person. And the money spending thing happens in the not for profit world across this country every single day where you're budgeted in grant a certain amount of money and you knock down the same wall and rebuild it 16 times to make sure you spend that money. So you're guaranteed to have it the next year. It's the same thing with government. Why being the limited government stalwart that he was, didn't he go back to try and rein that in or did he not have congressional support? Well, remember the three goals I've stated. Defeat the Soviet Union was number one. Rebuild the economy is number two. 
those two things alone took everything he had. It was a to think that one man could simply bring down the Soviet Union was was by itself mind boggling. But that one man could bring down the Soviet Union and uh, basically be the force behind rebuilding America's economy is just it's amazing to simultaneously then try to cut back on the agencies uh, that were helping to do the first. You needed the DOD to help do what you wanted to do. And uh, anytime you're, you're cutting government as big as it is, you are going to have an impact on the economy. And, you know, if he'd had one or two more terms, perhaps he might have been able to do that. He also lost Stockman. And that was a big loss, even though Stockman was a snake and a traitor. Uh, he did come in with the right goals and objectives of a revolution. It's just Reagan understood that the revolution was going to take a little bit longer than two years because of the nature of a recession was going to be required to squeeze out the incredible inflation. You know, we're going through a time of inflation that's already equal to what Reagan dealt with. And at the time, that inflation was severe enough to cost Jesus Carter his job. And um, and so uh, whenever you do that, you're going to be de facto putting government employees out of jobs and that's going to affect the economy. <clears throat> and so then we, 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 we can, you know, move that into president Trump with the shutdown. There's kind of a parallel there where some of the people inside government were speaking out and saying, Hey, you know what? We don't need half of these people. If not three quarters, maybe we'll just fire them all or get rid of them. Or can you please change the rule that says we can't, um, and so it seems the same things are plaguing all of these guys in the loser column, right? Uh, too much going on for them to focus on the one thing that causes a lot of the things going on. Um, we go into Donald Trump now, and you did a lot of research on this. Tell us why it is that people are confused about what Trump said when he said drain the swamp. What swamp was he talking about? Right. When when Trump was giving his 2015 and 2016 campaign speeches, and he said, drain the swamp. He almost exclusively meant the K Street lobbyist swamp. He was trying to get rid of donations to our legislators so that they would do what's right instead of what they are being paid to do by these various lobbyists. Now, after he gets in and fairly quickly, uh, he and and Bannon and uh, Miller and a coterie of the real insiders realize We have a major problem here, which is at best we can get, uh, I think Amanda Milius estimated it was 40 to 60 uh, real MAGA people involved in various places in government. Of the 3,000 positions that Trump had to appoint or or gets to appoint, right? Now, think of that under under, uh, Garfield. It probably would have been something like 10,000 back in the 1800s. Now it's after, quote, reforms, you're back to 3,000 people a president appoints, and there are hundreds of thousands that he doesn't get to appoint. And especially the damaging ones were in the DOJ, the FBI, and the CIA, the agencies that control law enforcement so you can't you can't uh, use the power of the law to get rid of these people or to fight your battles for you. And so Trump basically found himself like the guys in the 
in the movie Zulu, you know, about 80 guys fighting off five or 6,000 people who want to take you out. And he made, I think he overlooked some appointments that he should have been paying more attention to. And that allowed the encroachment of surrounding him of people who weren't really after what he was after. And you said something really interesting in another interview that you gave about how President Trump was the most federalist of all of the presidents that we've had in a very, very long time where he would defer to states and how that hurt him. Can you talk about that a little for us? Well, okay. first, let me address the appointments. And this is a a state of contention among uh, megaites. Was was Trump incompetent? He didn't know who to appoint and and he just appointed people because they made him feel good. Or was there something else? And I argue there was something else, namely the number of even remotely qualified mega people when he came into office was minuscule. I think he probably got every single mega person he could get and put them in, in some offices. And then you had people like Jeff Sessions, who who were total snakes, who appeared to be very supportive of the mega ideas. And the minute he gets in, he does the most damaging thing any attorney general could do which is he recuses himself and basically hands all power over to a super snake, Rod Rosenstein, who who spends the next couple of years trying to undercut Trump at, at every single level. Now, in terms of the federalism, I maintain if you look at what Trump said with every single major act or piece of legislation, if it was a law such as Obamacare or uh, immigration, he repeatedly tried to get Congress to do their job, fix the law, fix the border, whatever it was. He says, this is your job, not mine. Do it. And he couldn't he couldn't browbeat them into doing it. But he gave them multiple, multiple opportunities until he finally said, OK, if you're not going to do your job, I'll get the border funds from somewhere else from DOD and I'll build the wall myself. But in every single one of these instances, Trump's first inclination was federalist. And this is especially true in the destructive um, China virus business, where uh, we think it was uh, Vice President Pence who convinced Trump to take the federalist route here. By that, I mean Trump handed authority back to the states to deal with the China virus. And all of us federalists go, yay, right? Well, no. What that did was the states were nowhere near competent enough, or at least seemingly competent enough, to compete with the National Institute of Health and the CDC and all these other federal agencies with their myriad of labs and their billions of dollars. So by handing the job back to the states, what Trump really did and what I think Pence knew would happen was that he handed the job to Anthony Fauci or Dr. Fallacy, as I call him, because the states states didn't have the authority to really compete with that. And they, they said, well, well, what does NIH say? What does CDC say? And so Trump, by being federalist, actually hurt the cause there. Which is interesting because at the end of the day, the problem ends up being the immense size of the bureaucratic state in this country. Through Even way back in the 1800s, it's the same exact thing over and over. What hope is there for us to change this, if any? It seems overwhelming. It does seem overwhelming. Um, I think Bannon's answer is a good one. We start with 2022. 
and <clears throat> we get a whole bunch of mega or pro-Trump governors in there who will uh, help secure or more secure the elections process and get a bunch of congressmen and, and some more senators. We're not going to change the Senate fast, but we'll get more if we can get, for example, Herschel Walker in there um, and so on and so forth. Um, this is a start. And so um, I asked a very powerful congressman, I can't give his name, but I asked a very powerful congressman uh, about the FBI, for example. He said the FBI is totally corrupt, top to bottom. They need to be raised and replaced. But he says this has to be done right. It has to be well thought out because you're not going to operate without some sort of federal police because there are federal crimes to be prosecuted. Um, so there, he's a member of the Freedom Caucus, I'll tell you that. And there are a number of people inside the Freedom Caucus who are aware of the problem, but we don't yet have a critical mass there. And we, we don't need a critical mass in the Senate. What we need is a, a mass of enough megaites that the Senate can't consider removing Trump um, for any reason. Not that he would be impeached by a, a Republican House, but we need enough senators in there that they will, if not advance these measures, at least not stand in the way. And, and I think with, with good election outcomes here in the next two years, we can achieve some of that. And so you and I sat and did um, the 2020 election night special. Mike was actually a part of that as a guest. Um, and we sat and we did that. And now we're going to do hopefully another one. And you spend a lot of time on these local elections and trends and stuff like that. So to close out, first of all, everybody buy the book. Where can they get it? Well, Amazon, Barnes and Noble online. Uh, it is uh, not released till tomorrow officially, but you can pre-order it and it'll be out. My website, wildworldofhistory.com, is running an offer where we will get you an autographed copy of the book sent along with one year of my VIP which is normally $69, we'll get you all that for $89. So go on wildworldofhistory.com and, and get the offer and I'll send you an autographed copy and shipping's included. And actually spend time on Wednesdays if you're just kind of testing the waters because you do an amazing webcast on Wednesdays. Um, history, you know, you mix a lot of stuff in there. It's really entertaining and fun. We'll put a link to all that stuff in the in the show notes. Um, what do you portend to close out here? And again, it's Dragon Slayers, six presidents and their war with the swamp. What do you portend is going to happen in 2022, Larry, even with their still attempted fraud, which I, I argue they'll try? Yeah, I, I, you know, I'm an offense guy. Uh, the Bible says that uh, Jesus said the gates of hell would not prevail against you, meaning they're on defense. They're behind the gates. You're to be on offense. And I don't like this, this McClellan-esque notion that, oh, we can't win unless it's all stacked in our favor. BS, you know, fortune favors the bull. And so I think we need to be more aggressive all the time. But in 2022, I think the polls, again, you can believe or not believe the polls, but I think overwhelmingly it's showing that Republicans have anywhere from a five to a nine point generic lead. This translates in almost every year into something like 60 uh, vote swings. Personally, I think uh, every day that bite me is in office, that uh, America, America deteriorates further and people get angrier. 
at the Democrats and at bite me. And, and I think that by election day, by November 22, there's going to be a red wave like we have, have never seen. And I don't know how many senators will be sucked under in this, but I think there will be a change of at least two and maybe four, possibly even five. And again, these are going to be more MAGA people. It's not just the numbers here, the sheer numbers. It's the fact that we're replacing rhinos who voted to impeach Trump with MAGA people. So this is going to be an important election. And the governors are going to be incredibly important because they're going to be overseeing election reform. Carrie Lake in Arizona, if she wins, uh, I, I think you're looking at, at you know major changes here. And you've got places like Wisconsin and, and Michigan and Pennsylvania where Republican legislatures have have passed election reform and the governors have shot them down. So this will all be very, very important. I think that we're on the right track for, for a semi-landslide here, if not bigger. That's awesome. And I agree with you on, on all fronts, especially because I feel like a lot of Democrats have flipped the switch and understand that they can't keep voting that way, regardless of the party letter next to someone's name. Makes it harder to cheat when you don't have your base and um, guys, listen, Larry, you're a wealth of knowledge. When I was reading this, I said, this is one of those books I'm glad exists because in 10, even 15 years, people can look back at this and be like, wow, it was all spelled out in one place. Pick it up. Dragon Slayer, six presidents in their war with the swamp. Larry, thank you for being my friend and for writing for us and for joining us today on the show. Thanks, Tracy. I look forward to our election night 2022 again. Likewise. And that was the interview. That was fantastic. <laughs> it, it really was. And it makes me exhausted, though, when I have to try and pay attention. Because he's like that professor you had who would put two hours of lecture in a one-hour time period. But he's so engaging. Like, and his his view on things is it's not the... It's, like there are there's a bunch of people we didn't get too much into Lincoln, which is kind of a shame, but I wanted to stay focused more on the present. But the the Lincoln has a lot of haters out there on our side of the aisle, Mike. I did not know this. See, oh, yeah. I, I look at Lincoln as just because I'm an Illinois boy. You know, he's the land of Lincoln. Let's go. So uh, I look at Lincoln as he should be canonized as a saint, especially after what he went through in the Civil War. And it, it, the the genius of Lincoln cannot be underscored enough, in my opinion. Did you know he was a hypochondriac? Um, I didn't, but that wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, that's in the book. Um, definitely get this book. I loved it. it. The whole thing, the theme is the same throughout. It's the it's the entrenched bureaucracy. And I was being very careful when I was speaking because I didn't want you to pipe in and correct me if I used a name. <laughs> I would have not done that. See, Tracy <laughs> said to me, you sit quietly in the corner and eat your pizza because it's pie day. Right. And uh, so I did. And I listened and I scribbled notes with pizza grease, you know, right here on the side of my little notebook over here. And uh, I just I, I loved it. I had a good time. I learned something and I had pizza. Fantastic. All the information on the book is and, and his website, Wild World of History. If you're a parent looking to homeschool your kid and you want them to get a great U.S. history course, definitely pick it up. It's it's great. And um, let's let's talk about some things, Mike. I know you had some things to talk about. I have some things that I want to talk about as well. Um, you texted me over the weekend and you said they're starting to push the fourth shot. And I said, there is no way they're going to do that. Well, yeah, the CEO of Pfizer came out over the weekend and said, we're going to need a fourth COVID booster 
And so I pressed some of my folks inside the Cleveland Clinic and said, what the hell? And uh, I asked the question, is this a pandemic or is it endemic? And pandemics end generally. Endemics continue forever. And it looks like we're transitioning. It's such an important word for this year. Uh, we're transitioning to endemic status. But what they believe is going to happen, what my inside sources believe is going to happen, is we're going to get a shot that is a 10-year shot, like you would get uh, a shingles vaccine and or a pneumonia vaccine. And those are primarily targeted towards seniors. And I wonder, since seniors and those with comorbidities are the most at risk, if we won't focus there. But the reason I believe it's going to get pushed through, who came out this weekend and said they tested positive? Uh, Mr. Barack Obama. Yes. Or Mr. Miss, Miss, no, Mr. Mr. Yes, Mr. Barack Hussein Obama tested positive. But he said, I just got a little bit of a scratchy throat. So he feels fine. But you know, can you imagine a year ago or a year and a half ago, had Barack Obama tested positive for COVID? It would have been all over the news. Did you see it really anywhere in the legacy media? No, and, and that's because it doesn't sustain their narrative that the shots are beneficial. Yeah, yeah, but I think they're going to use this to say the, the virus is still out there and we might need to either protect on a long-term basis with a one- or ten-year vaccine that, that my buddies have been talking about that will get into your bone marrow. Oh, or, great. Great. Yeah, well, that's what, well, that's where permanent immunity lives. I don't want this gene therapy in my bone marrow. Thank you very much. I understand that. And, you know, your generation, your demographic has experienced, uh, what was the term I heard this weekend? A Vietnam. Yes. Well, I was, great segue. Yeah. Great segue. Six, 60 some thousand members of your generation died during the pandemic the last two years, which is more than we lost soldiers fighting in Vietnam. You understand when those deaths line up, don't you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I sure do. And they line up uh, parallel to the in introduction of and push for vaccination. Baby boomers saw 306,000 excess deaths during the same period, Mike. Yeah, but there's a lot of us. Who cares? You know, we've got a lot. Of, we could spare a few of me. Now, I, I am, and Tracy and I have had um, extensive discussions, and by discussions, I mean arguments, uh, <laughs> about the vaccination. I took the gamble myself. I rolled the dice because I am... Um, I don't have any comorbidities that I know of. I'm not obese. I don't smoke. I don't have um, any underlying uh, illness that would, would make me genetically predisposed to getting COVID or having it latch onto me. So um, I took the chance on taking the vaccine because I felt healthy enough. And Tracy might have elevated her volume a couple of times when I talked about it. But I've, uh, I've elevated my volume quite a bit, but I don't think enough because and I want to say something here. So my audience is going to viscerally react to that. OK, it's OK. I think it's good because you've come around, Mike. Well, I, I've come around to the point where 
I don't think I need any more vaccines. <laughs> I, I've had I've had my fill. Whatever's in me is doing its job as I have not gotten the the COVID-1984 virus. Well, it's and, not I mean, it's not even helping you to avoid that, honestly. No, um, it's, the immunity of ability has died, but the also the mortality of the current variant is so insignificant. Barry, the guy from Chicago, Barry Obama, he got uh, what do you say, a scratchy throat? Yeah, but we'll get so, you. We'll get you there without. See, this is the the challenge that I have with you, and I'm just gonna talk. We'll just talk about it since we're on the topic. The challenge. I'm, cha- I'm a challenge. Now. You are a challenge because here is the <laughs> here's the challenge I have with anyone, and and here's the challenge that everybody who is is so against this has is that so many of their friends and family and people they care deeply about have gotten it. So it's very difficult to be very open about the consequences, the potential outcomes, because you don't want to scare the person. But at the same time, you have to talk about all of the things. So I don't want to talk about certain things and scare you. But at the same time, I have a responsibility to talk about them. So I could tell someone else that might be thinking about doing this. Please don't do it. Okay. You you see where I'm at? I do, but uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna run a parallel argument here with you, which I think is always wise. And uh, my friend, who is a, a prosecutor out in California, always says they practice arguing from both sides of the aisle before they go into court, and you try and understand. But I also ask you the question: Are you on any daily medications? Yes. Okay. When you get you go to the pharmacy and you pick up your meds. There is a document that comes with every prescription that gives you instructions on how to take it, yada, yada, yada. And then there is a laundry list of every possible side effect that could happen. Yes. Right. All right. We didn't get that with the with the vaccine. And uh, I know we're hoping that we can finally get full access to all the things that could happen. But if I didn't take a medication and I don't take any daily meds except the, the baby aspirin, you know, the little yeah. bitty aspirin, uh, that's all I take every single day. But I just got over taking for the only the third time in a decade I had to take 10 days of an antibiotic, right? Because I, I had an ear infection for whatever reason. If I didn't take the meds, because of all the side effects or even one of the side effects that were listed in that, I'd still have the infection in my ear right now. Correct. That is an absolutely unequal counter argument to what we're talking about here for several reasons. No. Well, it's only it's only unequal because we lacked the data or currently lack the data on all of the possible side effects. No, it's unequal because you had an issue, i.e. an ear infection, and chose to take a medication with side effects, weighing the risk benefit, saying, okay, this medicine will fix my ear infection, right, that I currently have, Yes, but it could cause X, Y, and Z to happen to me. Yes. Also, this antibiotic has been around for decades, and I can take a look to see what could possibly happen or how frequent it is. Whereas with the vaccine, you didn't have what you're talking about, which is the list of potential side effects. The pharmacy didn't have the list of potential side effects because the the pamphlet was blank 
when they received the vaccine and you had no problem. You said yourself, you have no comorbidities. You have nothing that would cause you to become, you know, none of the risk factors. You were healthy for all intents and purposes. Yes, I was and hopefully still am. Uh, And but I also had the the other side of this is not the physical or the medical problem that I didn't have because I didn't have COVID, but I had a lifestyle problem. I had a government that had suddenly said, unless you have this, you can't do this. And I, I, I wasn't ready to lose my job. I wasn't ready to not have a source of income. And that honestly was what it affected me. As a matter of fact, um, the the vaccination afforded me more opportunity. So I will tell you that you are in the spot that millions of people were in with this vaccine mandate. Yeah, sure. Millions. And we used to plead with people to just stay strong and hang in there. And why did I say that? Um, well, because you believe that the vaccine was not right. And also the government control thing was not right. And I agree with you 100 percent on that. Well, I also said it because look what they're doing now, Mike. They're Which rolling they, back all of this. They're letting uh, the, United Airlines has told employees who didn't get vaccinated come to come to work. All is forgiven. Right. I saw that. You're seeing uh, it happen uh, in New York where they're letting you into restaurants without a vaccine card in concerts. It's it's starting to happen everywhere. And the lawsuits are are piling up now. When you're in a situation like you were in, where you're either going to make a living doing the thing that you've done for your entire life with your family, for your family, or you're going to say, you know what, I'm throwing all to the wind and I'm just going to hang in there and hope for the best at the end of the day. That is nearly an impossible decision. A lot of people chose to do the wait and see and just leave their job. And a lot of people chose not to. So I don't envy you at all for that choice. Well, you know, people also, like you said, there were millions of people in the same predicament as I and millions of them were offered government candy, were offered financial support. I took not one penny from the United States government during the pandemic. I took not one, absolutely not one penny of PPP or business support or any of that. And I was told I was a fool, but I was able to monetize actually. And I know this is going to trigger a whole bunch of people listening. I was able to monetize the vaccine to have the best radio year I've had in five years. I I will, I will say this. I, I hope and pray that you are one of the people that this does not affect in three, five, seven, ten years. Me um, too. And I know you do too. And so I, I'm going to ask that it's my own problem that I don't want to talk about. I, like, I'm afraid to say the, the terrible things that I'm seeing because I don't want you to feel bad. Um, it's you the mean same. The side effects that people are experiencing. Yeah. And, and, the, yeah. and the, you oh, know. I've seen them too. Yeah. Oh, I'm seeing them too. But I also see. So now. I don't know if we talked about this, but the Spanish flu epidemic pandemic from 20, uh, was it, uh, 1918, mm-hmm. 1919. Do you know that was the, the root of Parkinson's? No. You're, are you aware of that? Okay. Parkinson's wasn't a, a thing around the world until the pandemic and Parkinson's they believe, and they, you can, you can put this in the Google machine. Uh, again, Cleveland Clinic work on this. 
came to people who got the flu and survived. It was a long Spanish flu effect. And so there are concerns that a similar long COVID effect will be affecting the brains of people who got COVID. So and there's a huge number of them, too. Oh, yeah, I'm one of them. And, the, and here's another issue is that the vaccine never stopped people from getting COVID. It didn't work. T- historically, vaccines for viruses don't work. They've tried and failed over and over and over again. So people who got the vaccine got COVID and then were driving mutation of the of the virus because they were vaccinated and got it. So they actually prolonged the p- pandemic by getting vaccinated, getting COVID. And it's what's driving the fear. If you look at the numbers in the UK and elsewhere right now in Germany there and Hong Kong specifically of antibody dependent enhancement, where you've got a nation full of vaccinated, deathly ill people with this virus. And people are scratching their heads, looking around like, what's going on? Is this a worse? Vi-? Well, only for the vaccinated people, it is like that's the thing. You're messing around with a, a, a vaccine that has never been tried on people before ever in history that now we know from one in vitro study actually changes your DNA to potentially avoid the risk of long COVID decades in the future when there was early treatment available for this very not lethal virus when you get early treatment that was suppressed by the the same government that you have now, I guess, used to monopolize or to monetize, I'm sorry, your radio career. Yeah, I did. Now you might find fault with that. uh, Just judging by the phrasing you've used. No, I don't find fault with it. I'm just, I don't, I really don't. Honestly, I'm not judging you at all, at all. I'm just, I'm just saying like the, the problem was created by the same like you would never have been in that situation if the damn government wasn't an evil killing machine, which they've turned out to be. That's all. Well, had we taken the approach of Sweden, which I think was one of the more enlightened approaches, and that is to try and create herd immunity. And in my discussions with Dr. Michael Roizen in December and January, December of 1919 or 2019 and uh, 2020, uh, our discussion was how do we get to herd immunity? And that was to let everybody get sick. But they found, and, and they being the government, they found the, the comorbidity of obesity was so dangerous that they chose to go the route of this attempt to push through a vaccine in record time, which they did. Now, did it protect uh, the people who were, well, we learned this week, and if you listen to Bill Maher's rant, that 78% of the deaths from COVID were people who had the obesity problem? I don't believe that number. And here are a few reasons why. Number one, we have never gotten accurate death counts from COVID. You know that because when the narrative switch happened, they said, oh, we have to go back now and take a look at how we're actually classifying these deaths from or with. We have no idea how many people actually died from COVID. Number two. As opposed to with COVID. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Number two, I would argue that, you know, my husband is a bigger guy by the scale and he got COVID He has a very high vitamin D level because he takes care of his immune system for other reasons in a very diligent way. He got COVID first. 
He was treated immediately with ivermectin, antibiotic, um, all the things that are in the protocol. And he recovered in probably three and a half, four days. He handled COVID better than me, who is right, healthy, quote, healthy weight, no, no comorbidities, but a very, very low vitamin D level. So is it obesity or is it a, 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 a vitamin deficiency that is that is, at, you know, uh, crazy in this population of low vitamin D levels coupled with other things genetically for certain people? And the fact that there were people who were literally barred from getting the drugs that would work to cure this virus. And when they got into the hospital, were treated like third world citizens and stuck on a drug that literally killed them, remdesivir, and put on ventilators for no reason when it wasn't a virus of the lung the way that you would need a ventilator. That's not what was causing the problem. So, and there's more. I mean, I mean, we could go on and on and on about this. I, I argue that if the government didn't withhold early treatment in favor of an NIH protocol that was designed to harm people straight up, we wouldn't have had anybody who was overweight dying from COVID. Uh, I'm going to do something that's going to piss you off. And this is only the start of the second week of my appearing on the show <laughs> on your show. That's speculation. No. Yes, it is. Because you don't have enough data to make a prima facie case. And while I am supportive of the speculation and a believer that a lot of what you've said, I, look, I'm the guy who would have said, had I gotten COVID, I need ivermectin. Uh, yeah, give me the horse dewormer right now. I need vitamin D. And I made sure during the entire early days of the pandemic, I had more vitamin D than anybody because I, I told my wife I had to be out in the sun every day playing golf as often as possible. So I'm and I'm making a joke, but I'm also saying that was part of my regimen. And I also drank a glass of tonic water every single day because it had quinine in it, mm-hmm. which is one of the things that is part of hydroxychloroquine. And it's also something that the members of the Cook County Hospital staff did every day. They had tra- tables with uh, tonic water. So there, there isn't enough hard data yet to make that prima facie case. You can make a speculative, speculative case here. Okay, wait. What is not? What is there not enough data to support? Um, go back to one of your last statements there. The ivermectin as an early treatment protocol would have saved obese people from dying of COVID. Okay, well, uh, we didn't. The government prevented. I'm with you 100 percent on the government stopping uh, a an individual's choice to utilize treatment that they thought, in consultation with their physician because we saw cases of hospital hospitalized people whose, whose personal physician said, give them the ivermectin, and the hospitals denied it, and those people, in many cases, in, in cases we've seen documented, passed away. Uh, I completely believe the government way overstepped its bounds. And I also believe there was a financial reason this was done, because the cost of ivermectin and any and several what hydroxychloroquine yep. was nothing it was inconsequential it was pocket change compared to what we paid for the vaccines so you know there was a a greed attachment to this somewhere okay so you still but 
There are studies from other countries, forget the U.S. data. There are 64 double-blind placebo-controlled studies that prove what I just told you about ivermectin and obesity. And I can, I can send you the information. And it's good that you, I mean, this is a great conversation. Fantastic. I'm loving it every second of it, honestly. But so that, how do you account for the great deaths of obese people, the increased deaths of obese people? Because obesity is a comorbidity for COVID, right? I don't believe the numbers he's throwing out there by any stretch of the imagination. So both of these things are speculative. So they've already told us they don't have good data on hospitalizations and deaths. They've already and, and why? Why don't we have good data? Because I think I know. For the same reason you just said about money. We incentivized checking the box that said COVID in hospitals. You got more money if you said a patient had COVID from the federal government reimbursements. So if, I, yeah. Yeah. And I think in Maine, I believe it is just over this weekend, they had to basically, they reevaluated the deaths from COVID in Maine and three quarters of the deaths came off the list, Mike, three quarters. Yeah. Oh, I wouldn't be surprised if the numbers, the overall numbers of deaths were down, but I would, I would put a nickel right now. And I'm talking about a real nickel, one that a week ago was worth a dime, uh, that the numbers, the cause of death, the primary, I guess, uh, comorbidities would be age and age obesity and smoking. And I think if we if we get a reduced number, I think you will still see that those were massive contributing factors to loss of life from COVID. Um, just like with the flu or the even the common cold, there are people who do worse with a virus than other people would do. There's no way to avoid death from illness and virus in this country or in this world. The, po the point is, is that even those numbers compared to the general population of obese people are tiny, tiny. Now, no death is tiny, right? Nobody wants to lose their their relative. The, the problem comes in it, where the, gover the government has literally contributed to this, literally, and, and is now sitting there on their high horse trying to tell everybody to go out and get a fourth booster of a thing that never worked in the first place and is actually even causing people even more harm than good. It's completely experimental. They don't even know at this point what's going to happen. Being in their trial data myself over the past several weeks their trials were not even run correctly and they pushed this thing through and innocent people out there who couldn't give informed consent for the reasons that you very specifically stated at the beginning got this and are now going to be suffering because of it. And it breaks my heart and my soul. And I don't remember where we started, but here we are. Okay. And, and I think we're in agreement or as the often incorrectly worded people on the internet and social media say, I think we're in agreement. On this, that always <laughs> makes me laugh when people say, it. I think we're in agreement that while Pfizer may be pushing the fourth injection, I don't think it's going to be as easy a pill to swallow because we now don't have a raging uh, return of the pandemic. Unless you look at China, which closed two of its biggest cities over the weekend because they have a burgeoning COVID infection rate in both of them. But no one's talking about what we now realize should be the primary reason you get a vaccine. And that is because 
you're more likely to die from the virus than you are from the vaccine. It's 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 a gamble. It is you're, a gamble. You're at a table in Vegas and the odds are 10,000 to one, you know, so you bet you bet smartly. But, you know, you don't you don't automatically go up and throw five thousand dollars on a ten thousand to one bet unless you're stupid. But I think I think we're going to see with Obama and this Pfizer discussion another push. And I'm kind of pivoting here. Well, I have one last point to make. Alien voting. Oh, geez. Oh, goodness. I'm just going to end with this and we'll talk about that. That segue. That's a fantastic point. You take that antibiotic knowing that it will cure your ear infection. Believing, not knowing. 99.9%, you're pretty sure it's going to, right? Yeah, I made that that, uh, assessment, that risk assessment. You couldn't do that with the vaccine because they didn't, forget the fact that this was, I think that this was all malicious. I really do. Forget that for a second. They didn't even know. See, I want to believe I'm I'm still a dreamer, Tracy. Even in my advanced age, I want to believe that not all people are that evil. That that kind of evil really doesn't uh, exist in in our world, and yet here we are. Yeah, not all people are, but the people in those positions of power, sadly, are. Yeah, they're easily corruptible, and we know for for which reasons: for power and money, and sometimes a combination of both. So. You think that Barack Obama got COVID right now and this fourth vaccine push is happening potentially speculatively, of course, Mike, because they want to do another wave of mail-in voting. I do. I do believe that we're going to see something with whatever comes out of where if there's another hotspot that, oh, my God, we can't do this. And this fall, we have to have another mail-in voting push because- God forbid another pandemic happens. And I'm very concerned about that. So. But but that said, I would be all for um, drop off voting right now at every gas station. <laughs> I'm just saying. Put those box, those collection boxes right next to the pump and the sticker. Right that's there. Pulled- Who are you going to vote for <laughs> right now? You don't have a choice. It's what is it now? You sent this morning in your prep. It's four forty three on average a gallon across the country. Yeah, uh, up seventy nine cents in the last two weeks. Think about that. And while the Democrats are continued to say that this is the uh, Putin price hike, the the latest data from an ABC News poll, the people ain't buying it. They're going to keep saying it, but the people ain't buying it. So you saw. I, I'm sure you have this clip. I'm putting you right on the spot. Biden getting angry about inflation talk. Hear me? It will blow up. <laughs> he was, the, first of all, the, Bi- the Biden and Pelosi crew came to Philadelphia this weekend, which is a, a cat's throw from where I live, and I'm not advocating throwing cats. Uh, it's just to give you an idea how close Philadelphia is. And so we're having, the entire city is being smudged as we speak right now. A bunch of Native American groups have smudge <laughs> sticks trying to get the evil spirits out. And they were all speechifying. And uh, Joe did get angry. I have angry Joe, too. I'm sick of this stuff. We have to talk about it because the American people think the reason for inflation is government spending more money. Simply not true. Make no mistake. Inflation is largely the fault of Putin. So. <laughs> 
He had something different to say last November, though. Do you remember what he said in November? No. I do. Let's be absolutely clear about why prices are so high right now. They're very high for two reasons, notwithstanding what the Republicans say. Yeah, yeah. COVID, number mm-hmm. one. Mm-hmm. What happened was, the, glo- the, the, the way the global economy works, if a factory in Taiwan makes computer chips, shuts down because of COVID, it causes a ripple effect that can slow down the manufacturing in, this, in Detroit, which it did. So in the fall, he blamed COVID, but now it's Vladimir Putin's problem. It's always someone else's problem. And, and that, that brings me to my next kind of thing. Well, can I stay on? Can I give you one more Democrat? Oh, yeah. Because I want you to have confidence in the leadership of the Democratic Party. <laughs> because after Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. got up there and made his confusing statements and, and got into the whisper thing, Nancy Pelosi decided she had to put a cherry on top. And just tell me you're not confident after hearing this. The larger issue about Putin's tax, that's that's really Putin's gas hike. That's his gas hike. This so much of this uh, increase in the gas tax, uh, gas uh, price started uh, 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 Weeks leading up to what happened there. Yeah, she's a leader, isn't she? It's clear as mud. Oh my gosh! Seriously. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's what was said. And Joe also told the faithful gathered in Philadelphia that um, that he believed the Democrats were going to win the midterms. That alone should qualify for Amendment Twenty Five to be invoked right now. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they're losing the script on this whole thing, Mike, because even even the whole we we talked about the U.N. Security Council meeting where we said what's going to happen. And you said absolutely nothing. And you were pretty much right, except there's a problem because the U.S. government has has spiked up its propaganda. I'm going to say propaganda because they've contradicted themselves. So that's allowed, right? Yes, of course. They said that there's nothing going on in these laboratories other than just research on zoonotic diseases and all kinds of stuff. There's no bioweapons crap going on there. So open the doors. Let us in. Invite the press. And now they're saying Russia is going to commit a biological attack because they stole things from the laboratories that were not doing biological weaponry research. And and China's like, okay, now we want a full account of all the biomilitary activities in Ukraine because your responses are so self self uh, contradictory and confusing that nobody knows what's going on anymore. And I don't I don't agree with China. I think China is the the bane of the entire world. However, they're right because even the American people are like, "What in the hell are you talking about?" Yeah, I I think this whole thing has a, a cloud not over it but in front of it, preventing us to get an accurate look. And now that China has entered it because of Russia asking China for more weapons. And, you know, we gave them a stern warning, didn't we? There will be serious consequences, little mister, if you dare help out Russia. I, I just think the wor- we need a, a force that Joe Biden said he would be, a uniting force that would get the world behind all of this to say, China, Russia, you ain't getting nothing until you stop this now. Because, you know, the, the next step is obviously Taiwan. And don't forget over the weekend, Iran lobbed uh, a dozen missiles at our consulate near our consulate in Iraq. 
and uh, we have video of the missiles being launched, and yet we're still negotiating with Iran about how they can get themselves a nuclear bomb. There, it's, it's madness. There was something I read, and again, this is this is also speculation that the reason this is happening is actually like some. I forget where I read it, but I'm going to talk about it anyway. They're saying that there's a chance that this was done on purpose to get the United States to stop negotiating with Iran because the deal is so harmful to us that that's the only way that people could figure out to get us to potentially step away from the table for a minute. Wait, so the the deal is so bad for us that somebody in Iran launched missiles at us in order to get the deal queered? That it's a false flag. Oh, that we may have launched those missiles. Like CIA or entrenched or somebody there. Hmm. That's a theory. I mean, it's just a theory that, you know, to be honest at this point, I talk about this all the time. And I think that you're on this wavelength, too. Um, you know, it's interesting because you had me on your show to talk about all the news that I always prove everything out and I show everything. And so yeah. a, lo- a lot of the times it was somewhat controversial, wouldn't you say, Mike? <laughs> I, I loved it because it was. <laughs> and it's just the truth at the end of the day. So this is what happened to all these doctors that are now like realizing what the medical establishment actually is like the Peter McCullough's of the world. They just woken up from this slumber where they thought that everything was rosy and peachy and didn't realize what was going on in the world around them. And now they'll believe anything because everything they knew was false. So a lot of doctors I've seen on social media, not no, not naming any names at all. A lot of doctors have gone off into conspiracy crazy land, Right. Because well, it's easy to go there. You know, it is easy to go there when you've been made the devil for speaking your mind. When when the as you had to talk with uh, Larry before I came in, um, when the system rises up against you, it's a pretty powerful thing and it's very difficult to fight. It It, it certainly is. And so what happens is because I've been doing this for a very long time for basically half of my adult life since I was 20 and I'm 41, I got through all that when I was in my early twenties. So I'm a lot more keen to substantial, you know, data and facts to back things up and stuff. But there are people running around. I I have, I have no question in my mind that there are good guys in the government doing stuff. Right. Yeah. Could, could there could that theory have been look, the, the the biological labs in Ukraine started off as a conspiracy theory until it wasn't anymore. Usually it's years. Look at what yeah. the JFK assassination. <laughs> yeah, I my I have a friend who's made quite a nice living writing books about that kind of a thing. Um but well, here's the thing. You go back to uh, I now I lost my point here I was going to make that tied to that. Um Theories, theories, crazy things that we didn't think. Yeah. The crazy things that that fade. We call them crazy and then suddenly they're not. I was I was going to tie it to the Larry Schweiker thing about the appointments over groups within our government that have no responsibility to the government or to the people. And Fauci's in that category and whatever he was doing with gain of function research sending taxpayers dollars around the world to labs that we know nothing about. And we, I doubt we even have a full accounting of where they are. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that all ties back into all this foreign policy. And what I would say when you say, you know, you wish that we had a leader here who could unite everybody and that the world would get together and say, Russia and China, you're not getting anything. 
I would argue that, you know, the Great Reset plan, which they told us about in their own words, the same way they told us about the COVID-19 pandemic before it actually happened, their plan is to do just this. The Germanys of the world, the, the they want this sort of destabilization in the world. What did what did Schwab say? You'll own nothing and you'll be happy. Yeah, yeah, I won't be happy. I like owning crap. I know that it's hard to go there because it sounds like something out of a New World Order Bohemian Grove conspiracy manual. Well, um, you go go back to Agenda Twenty One. Yep. And I don't know how familiar you are with that. But Very. Agenda- 21 hasn't gone away. And I'm the one who brought Agenda 21 to Glenn Beck years ago and said, hey, buddy, this is going on and it's already in 600 cities in America. And he went, no, no, it's not. I said, yeah, here's the data, pal. When Agenda 21 got exposed and finally people started waking up going, oh, my God, I don't want to live under the United Nations Bill of Rights. I happen to like our Bill of Rights. Mm -hmm. And, and I like personal property. I don't want to be told where to live and how, how I will not be able to have a car or will be able to have a car. And the Agenda 21 agenda has just been rebranded. Yeah. There. Didn't they change it to Agenda 2024? Um, I think it's even been changed to Agenda 40 or something like that. It's, and Pelosi is on video at the early Agenda 21 meetings back in the 80s. Yeah, they, they this stuff didn't happen overnight. But what I will argue has happened overnight, practically, if you compare it, if you compare the timelines, is the the people getting wise to this exponentially. Hopefully, I, I, hopefully, I, I I look at our 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 population versus the Ukrainian population, and I wonder. How many of your demo would fight versus go away or just give up? Mm. I, I wonder. We're very soft and we're very comfortable. You know what I'd be doing, right? I do. I know you're on a brigade. You're in a tank. <laughs> you're in a Ukrainian tank. You're like, I told you, Dr. Ruth was a sniper. <laughs> Dr. Ruth, remember Dr. Are oh, you too young to know? I remember Dr. Ruth. She was always on with what's his name? Dr. Drew at night on MTV. Hello, are we here to talk about the penis? Yep. And she was this grandma who still with us, I believe. But she was trained. Yeah. I think Dr. Ruth is still with us. She was trained as a sniper in the Israeli army. No. Yeah. Oh, you don't believe it? Look it up. It's in the Google machine. She also she has no kills because she never got pressed into service. But she was trained because she was one of the best shots. She could hit anything. And she was also good at lobbing a hand grenade. So little bitty Dr. Ruth, who isn't tall enough to get on most of the rides at Disney, and and it just would have been one of the best badasses ever. There she is. I have her right here on the Google machine. She's still alive. She's 93. Yeah. And she's standing in front of a wall full of rifles. Yeah. She was a sniper. (laughs) I got... I <laughs> I got to ask you, Mike, do you have anything else for today? Yes, I do. I got a couple of things we have to bring up and maybe we'll continue the discussion tomorrow. I happen to be um, pro-life. I'm not out there uh, pounding on doors and telling people, hey, don't abort your child. But if somebody asks me, I'm going to tell them, yes, that's a baby inside of you. A human has different DNA and everything. So I'm, I'm kind of pro-life people. 
And I like that uh, we shouldn't be murdering children inside mothers. Uh, but uh, uh, Portland, Oregon came out with a new law that if you have an abortion and you work for the government in Portland, you can now get paid bereavement time. Oh, no, no. I'm not kidding you. Now, herein lies a very unique dilemma because I think they've now made the argument that abortion is taking a human life. Yeah. So by giving themselves, and they voted unanimously, the city council (laughs) in Portland, Oregon, unanimously to grant paid bereavement leave to anyone who has an abortion. Um, And yes, I understand there are medical reasons why pregnancies can be terminated. Yes. But to use abortion as birth control to me is a crime and it's murder and all that stuff. But now to say that they would be allowed bereavement leave to me is an admission that a life has been taken. And uh, and therefore, you could extrapolate this to the very furthest end of it to say, well, then if somebody kills somebody, like murders somebody, they should get paid bereavement leave too. Yeah, I mean, yes. Wow. So, so there's a, fa- the a fascinating thing to watch. And uh, maybe we'll get my buddy, Wendy Patrick, she's an attorney and a prosecutor, to uh, see if she can argue this with us and discuss it because I think this is a game changer and I think you know they're they're all waving the flags in Portland going yay we get paid leave if we have an abortion and then someone's going to go you know that means you just acknowledge that's a separate life what is it their hubris will be their downfall it's it's exactly they are sharpening the knives that will be used against them Uh, it's one of those things I have one more final kind of crazy madness thing okay and you live in the hinterlands of sort, do you not? What does that mean? <laughs> uh, you, you don't live in a big city. No, no. Because I live in, near Wilmington, Delaware, in the woods, outside of Wilmington, Delaware. And it's it's civilized, but it's not urbanized, right? Okay. Uh, have, have you ever consumed roadkill? No. I grew up in a city, for goodness sake. Not, never one. Yeah, you're up on a long, skinny island, right? Uh, otherwise known as Long Island. Yes. Uh, but uh, there are a lot of people who are having to make a choice between gasoline and food these days. So there is speculation that roadkill will become more of a staple. You know, people here do eat roadkill and they well, do it. They do it. I, I know. I know a lot of people who do, mm-hmm. believe it or not. And my buddy, survivalist uh, Creek Stewart, who is just, we have to get him on the show too. Uh, Creek has schooled me on the... The deliciousness of squirrel stew, if one is lost in the woods. And it's it's a fascinating conversation. But the people in the state of Wyoming, the state government has created an app to help harvest roadkill. An app? An app. So there's a smartphone app that has been developed that will alert you to when there is fresh roadkill in your area, and you are allowed to go and harvest it completely. I feel like that'll end up being something like the, the what's that movie where they all get locked, they, they're not allowed to kill anyone for the entire year, The Purge. How, how are you going to, why would you report the roadkill down if you wanted it? Well, not everybody wants it. Let's say you're out driving around and you hit a deer and you take out a deer. And you say, oh, this is terrible. This deer died. But face it, mule deer is delicious. 
It's almost steak-like in its structure and a fresh mule deer barbecued in the afternoon. That's just, that's some good eating right there. And you hate to see it go to waste, especially if you're someone who lives in the middle of nowhere. You understand the value of maximizing everything you encounter. You use every part of everything. Fair enough. I like that. So therein lies this beauty that the state of Wyoming has created a way for citizens to say, by the way, on the corner of Fifth and Vermouth, I just hit a deer. It's off to the side of the road. Uh, it's fair game. And then you as a, you'll get an alert on your phone. Bloop, fresh mule deer on the corner of Fifth and Vermouth. Go over there and uh, do your thing. Can we talk about the money it's going to save animal control? It's going to say, it, this is a wise thing. It's a very wise thing. And nobody goes out of their way to hit a deer. No. Or no. a turkey. It, or it damages your car. I hit a and, possum once. It destroyed my car. Now, I don't know about possum is good eating and roadkill, but I'm sure there's somebody who does. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure people eat possum. Listen, people would eat anything when, when the, the shit really hits the fan. That's true. And as I said, we now have people who are making decisions between gasoline and food, driving and food. You know what's crazy? I weighed a decision over the weekend. Do I drive with the kids to get them the lunch that they've been asking me for for weeks as a little treat? Or do I order it on an app and let someone else pay the gas and pay the delivery fee? Well, you could do that. But Uber announced uh, Saturday they're adding a surcharge Ugh. for gasoline costs. So the trickle down, which I'm calling tinkle down, because the way the price of gas is going, it's like someone's peeing on everything in your world. Because all of it's going to be affected. Everything in your purview is is delivered to you using gasoline, some way, shape, or form. You know what's crazy? I saw a story about a Tesla that had died because its battery died. Mm -hmm. And the truck that had to go out to charge it, <laughs> which runs on gasoline to power its engine and the compressor or whatever that runs the battery charger... These yeah, they bring a generator. You bring a small generator. Just morons. Now, I don't know how you it's like people running out of gas. You how do you how do you run out of battery power? Very easy. It's, there's no charging stations anywhere. Well, they're frankly in my neighborhood there's plenty and I can plug in at home at night and it doesn't jack up my electric bill and I can prove to you I have actual data on it cuz they track all this stuff. But if everybody gets a Tesla, or an electric car, we can't sustain that. No. Our grid cannot handle it. We're at 3% of all the cars on the road today are electric. If we get to 10%, it's going to be tough. If we get to 20%, we are screwed. See? So I, I'm actually thinking, even though I've ordered a new Mach-E, the electric uh, Ford, um, I might go back and get myself a, a gooey dinosaur juice-powered BMW. See, so you don't have the issue of gas. I don't right now. My wife does. Not, not I mean, in a vehicle anyway. Yeah, anyway, yeah. Uh, the antibiotics caused the other problems. But uh, <laughs> no, which they did. Uh, but the, the cost of driving my car is related to electricity cost, which it's not, it's not seriously affecting me or my home electrical bill. But my wife pays for gas. She doesn't drive that much. Yeah. But anybody who drives, I my heart breaks for you. You got to pay a hundred bucks to fill up a twenty gallon tank. Yep. 
And, and look at diesel, thousands of dollars to fill the tanks on those giant semis delivering your stuff. I know it's crazy. It's crazy. And it's not sustainable. And they just keep telling us everything's going to keep going up. Yes. Everything's going to keep going up. And I, when is the breaking point in November of 2022? Maybe <laughs> before then, maybe before then I've seen Vladimir Putin on the gas pumps now pointing to the gas pump saying, Joe did that, not me. It could all be ended overnight. Easily. Drill, baby, drill. Anwar, signed by Jimmy Carter and then shut down by other Democrats, would be a rich place for us. Tomorrow, if we can. because I got, I actually, yeah. Yeah, what, yeah, Wednesday. Everything's tomorrow in my world. Um, let's talk about the solar storm. Oh, yeah. We- yeah. Yeah, we can do that. I, I'm, I, I watch all that stuff, so yes. But I have to see a man about a dog. Okay, well, you have been listening to the Dark Delight Podcast with Pie Day Mike and Beans. You can hear us every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at 2.30 Eastern Time on TuneIn, Stitcher, Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and RadioInfluence.com. We will be back on Wednesday. I just have one thing to say. I am not suicidal. (laughs) I'm not suicidal. This is an MMA report with Jason Floyd and Daniel Galvan. Quick fix on Radio Influence. Everyday man sits here and looks at this case, and I say, "Okay, I'm not, I'm not trying to sit here and say Kane should be released." Yeah, but I'm also looking at the other aspect of this story where I go, just days before this incident, a man, and this is a quote from a, a news article I found: Velasquez was wrestling money after allegedly shooting a man while targeting another man accused of molesting a family member, possibly a hundred times. That man is out on bail. And I think we look at that and say, is that just something that's wrong with our judicial system that someone would be accused of something of molesting a child? He's out with an ankle monitor on while the guy who basically decided, I think the judicial system has let me and my family down. And look, I'm not trying to say he should have done this. Yeah. But I'm just saying, like, I look at that and say, how is this guy not in jail? Right. Yeah. So kind of a few things there. Like, well, let's start with the bail part for a second, because if you look at it, you are guaranteed you're, you're protected by the Constitution and the, and the Bill of Rights to not have unreasonable bail. Right. Mm-hmm. Different from you can have bail denied. So it's not a right that you actually are allowed to be bonded out. OK, it's just you're guaranteed that, it, that the amount won't be unreasonable, yeah. but the amount can be zero, meaning that you're staying. Right. So there's that aspect to it. What I'm having a really hard time wrapping my head around is where did the justice system fail Cain Velasquez? The guy was out on bail. The guy hadn't the guy hadn't even had trial yet. Right. So this guy who's who's accused of this lewd and lascivious act. Okay, And look, talking strictly from the legal side of things, right? Because there's, there's a difference of, and I, I, and I'm a little bit amazed, I guess, by the outpouring of support. The MMA report with Jason Floyd and Daniel Galvan can be found on Apple podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn radio, Google podcasts, and radioinfluence.com.